You're tuned to Community Radio, KVMR, FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Right after the BBC headlines, the California Report brings us stories about COVID-19 recommendations and restrictions from different parts of the state and highlights a new report from UCLA and UC Berkeley that states that hundreds of thousands of Californians might lack access to safe drinking water, especially in communities of color. After local news and weather, Felton Pruitt talks art with the Nevada County District Attorney, Jesse Wilson, and Lori Nunick, Senior Victim Advocate with the Nevada County Victim Witness Assistance Center. We close tonight with a commentary by Chaplain Norris Burks. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. With an unprecedented surge in COVID-19 infections, officials in Los Angeles County are advising residents to avoid non-essential gatherings. Here's County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer speaking at yesterday's Board of Supervisors meeting. We're also asking that over the next few weeks, we all try to avoid non-essential activities where people are unmasked and in close contact with others. While we know how important getting together with friends is to our well-being, we need to be sure we're able to keep each other safe. The reality is that parties and events, especially those indoors with unvaccinated individuals or those at high risk for severe illness, make it very easy for this virus to spread. Ferrer notes that limiting or avoiding gatherings are only recommendations and that no new restrictions have put in place in L.A. County that might force larger events like next month's Super Bowl to be canceled. Meanwhile, in Sonoma County, a new public health order there takes effect today. It bans large gatherings over the next 30 days, limiting indoor events to 50 people and outdoor gatherings to 100. Officials in other Bay Area counties have said they will not be implementing new restrictions at this time. We asked Dr. Bob Wachter, chair of the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco, on how he's treating this latest surge. For the next three or four weeks, what things do I really need to do that that will almost inevitably expose me to people who have COVID, and what things can I cut out and not be particularly harmful to, uh, to my life? In Sacramento, Governor Newsom has maintained that he doesn't anticipate any new restrictions despite the rapid spread of the virus in the state. A single-payer health care bill passed its first legislative hurdle in Sacramento last night. It's one of two new proposals that would dramatically increase access to health care for Californians. But CAP Radio's Nicole Nixon says there are differences between the proposals. Governor Gavin Newsom this week said he wants to give universal access to health care by opening Medi-Cal coverage to all low-income residents, regardless of immigration status. It would apply to about a million undocumented people currently in a coverage gap, says Cal State Fullerton public health professor Shana Charles. So it wouldn't change anything about anybody's job-based coverage. It wouldn't change anybody's Medicare coverage. All of that would remain in place. Single payer, on the other hand, it would affect everybody. In the so-called CalCare plan, the state would pay for every resident's health care, eliminating private and government insurance programs. It's the type of system championed by progressives like Bernie Sanders, but on a state level. Newsom's expansion for undocumented workers would cost about $2.7 billion annually. It's unclear exactly how much a single-payer system would cost, but some estimates say it could raise taxes for businesses and wealthier earners by more than $160 billion. 
That tax increase would be enacted through a constitutional amendment, which means CalCare would require sign-off from the legislature, governor, and voters. An extremely high bar. For the California Report, I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. Hundreds of thousands of Californians might lack access to safe drinking water. That's according to a recent study from UCLA and UC Berkeley. And the drinking water problem disproportionately affects communities of color. KCRW's Kaylee Wells has the details. The study tested water for nitrate, arsenic, and hexavalent chromium. They can cause cancer, and they're all commonly found in California. Turns out 370,000 Californians have high levels of those chemicals in their water, and nearly half of those people are relying on domestic well water. There's no requirement to test uh, domestic well water for the presence of chemicals. UCLA environmental health science professor Lara Cushing says a lot of Californians have no way of knowing if their water is safe. Most groundwater access with a private well doesn't get treated like in a public drinking water system. Cushing also says the climate-induced drought makes the chemicals more concentrated and makes the water quality worse. Prior studies suggest more than a million people lack access to safe drinking water once you test for bacteria and other contaminants. For the California Report, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. Recently synonymous with supply chain problems, the ports of L.A. and Long Beach are now getting praise from the Biden administration. Visiting the ports yesterday, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said Southern California's ports saved the holidays for Americans. One of the reasons why Christmas was not, in fact, canceled is that ports like L.A. and Long Beach moved record levels of goods, allowing an all-time record high in terms of retail sales this holiday season. The transportation secretary's visit comes as the number of containers lingering at marine terminals continues to drop. But the aftermath of problems at the ports continues to echo across the state. Agriculture is one of the industries hit hardest by supply chain snarls. As we hear from Valley Public Radio's Carrie Klein, research shows that losses from so-called container geddon have reached into the billions. billion to be exact. That's an estimate of how much California's ag industry lost in just four months of last year, according to findings from a University of California research magazine. The reason? Bottlenecks at California ports, which have delayed exports of California-grown products and led foreign importers to find alternative suppliers. Roger Isom is the president of two local trade associations representing cotton ginners and tree nut processors. This is probably one of the most devastating things that's happened to the ag industry since I've been working. Isom has been involved in ag for nearly three decades. And if California's ports don't expand their capacity, he worries ag could be in danger. Some of our customers are starting to wonder, is California going to be the solid supplier that they used to be? Yeah, I think that's a legitimate question right now. The research, published in December's UC Agricultural and Resource Economics update, estimates the tree nut industry alone has lost more than $500 million. For the California Report, I'm Carrie Klein in Fresno. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together on the web at schmidtfutures.com. Stanford Medicine, Protecting your health and providing defendable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash adaptingcare. 
and the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And that is the California Report for Wednesday, January 12th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. Last week, we were at 453 cases over the course of the week, which is our second highest week of the pandemic. And then this week, just through the first three days, you can see that we're at 473 cases already. That's Ryan Groover, Director of Health and Human Services, talking about the current number of weekly COVID-19 cases here in Nevada County. He stated in a media Q&A today that it's quite possible that Nevada County will exceed its previous peak of 488 cases per week before our current week ends. And if you've looked at all at the the trajectories and case charts um, in other places that are more mature in their Omicron surges, some places are peaking out at um, 300, 400 percent of their previous peaks in the pandemic. So um, I think we can expect that we're early stages here and we can expect to see uh, significantly more cases um, over the next coming weeks. In other COVID-19-related news, the Nevada Joint Union High School District Board is meeting tonight to vote on a resolution that, if passed, would, quote, petition the state that the COVID-19 vaccine not be a requirement for public school students and staff, end quote. If adopted, the resolution goes on to say that the Board of Trustees expects all masking, testing, and vaccination mandates to terminate when the current state of emergency is slated to end on March 31st, 2022. Turning now to regional weather, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight mostly cloudy with a low around 43 degrees, tomorrow mostly sunny with a high near 59. In Lake Tahoe and the Truckee region, tonight increasing clouds with a low around 29 degrees, tomorrow mostly sunny with a high near 46 Finally, for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, patchy, dense fog after 8 p.m., otherwise mostly cloudy, with a low around 41. Tomorrow, patchy fog before 11 a.m., otherwise cloudy, then gradually becoming mostly sunny, with a high near 59. Up next, Felton Pruitt talks with Jesse Wilson and Lori Nunick about a new art contest being rolled out by the Nevada County District Attorney's Office. We're talking with Jesse Wilson, Nevada County's District Attorney, as well as Lori Nunick. And Lori, you want to tell me exactly what your title is? Yeah, I am the Senior Victim Advocate with the Nevada County Victim Witness Assistance Center. We're headquartered under the District Attorney's Office. And we've got you guys on the line today because we're going to talk about a special art contest that the district attorney's office is putting together. Yeah, thank you for having us. So tell us, what's the purpose of the art project, who's involved, and what's the long-term goal? I mean, to answer that question, Felton, the Nevada County District Attorney's Office, the Victim Witness Assistance Center, on a regular basis, we bring victims of child abuse and neglect in and one of our mission statements is providing a supportive investigative process and, and in the end, diminishing the damage that children that go through such experiences receive and during the victimization process. So we do everything we can in our assistance center to, like
like I said, lessen the damage that it, that they have to go through and, and just having to go through this whole process that can be very intimidating, very overwhelming for them. And so one of the things that we can do is provide a safe environment to interview these children. And this art contest is part of providing a more comfortable environment for people, usually ages under 13 years old. Um, Laura, do you want to add on something to that? I think you covered it, Jesse. You know, I'm a firm believer that getting kids involved in community efforts is significant. and It really shows our kids, you know, what it means to be community, what it means to care for others. So, you know, Jesse, you covered it. And our goal is to just make sure that that environment, that investigative environment is a positive one for the kids that are utilizing our services. So you folks are going to have an art contest for school-age kids. They're going to create a mural in the interview room of the district attorney's office that is specifically for interviewing kids who were the victims of crimes. And then the mural would add a sort of a safe feeling and a safe environment. Is that pretty much the goal? Yes, that is our goal. We already try to create that comfortable environment by um, bringing in kids' artwork, we think that that will really speak to kids, and it will really, it comes from a perspective, from a kid's perspective. So um, our hope is that these kids who are submitting these submissions for the art contest will come from a place where they can maybe sympathize with the children who are being victimized, and that they can help reduce the stress of that process, reduce the victimization that these kids feel. So yes, by pulling these kids in to participate in this program, we're creating an environment and they're helping us to create that environment that's safe for our kids. How specifically will the contest work? You've got kids, they're going to like draw on just on a piece of paper and then submit them to the district attorney's office or how will that work? Yeah, kids 14 and under are um, invited to submit eight and a half by 11 sheets of artwork. That medium can be done in watercolor. It can be done in colored pencil. There are various mediums they can use, but they are submitted on an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. Those submissions won't be returned. So all the submissions we get, we're going to take. We're going to vote on the top five, and the top five winners will receive a $25 John Juice gift certificate. Those top five submissions will be framed and also included in our interview center. The top 14 to 18-year-old submission, the one that wins that contest, that mural will actually be painted on the wall in the child interview room. So that winner will come into the center and they will have whatever time they need to paint that winning mural on the wall. We'll replicate their submission that was originally submitted by the eight and a half by 11 form. So the winning kid actually gets to come in and paint on the wall of the district attorney's office. Yep, that's right. (laughs) That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, we're looking forward to a lot of participation. We're trying to get the word out there. We've had a lot of calls in the recent week. So I, I do anticipate that we will have a lot of submissions between now and the April 22nd deadline. Now, do the kids just submit it directly to the district attorney's office, or do they go through their school? No, they submit it directly to the district attorney's office. We have guidelines on how to submit it. Um, they submit their, their original work of art, and it will be joined by a cover letter sort of explaining why they want to submit this work of art. They'll send it to the district attorney's office in a yellow envelope, an eight and a half by 11 envelope. And once we receive those, we will start the judging once all of our applicants um, have submitted their pieces of work. The artwork will be judged on certain criteria. Creativity is one of those criteria. And representation of the theme and subject matter. And our theme is kindness is contagious. 
we could all use to be a little kinder in our community and especially during this time. So kindness is contagious. We thought was an appropriate theme for the uncertainty we're living in right now. What's the address that they mail these submissions to? Applicants can mail their submissions to 201 Commercial Street, Nevada City. The zip code is 95959. And is there a website you can go to to find information about all of this? Yeah, the website is um, mynevadacounty.com, and they can, applicants or interested folks, can just review the guidelines, and if they have questions, they're welcome to call our office with questions. That number is 530-265-1247, and that's the direct line to the Victim Advocacy Center. That sounds like a great little project. I wanted to thank Jesse, you and Lori for, I don't know who came up with this, but it's wonderful that you're putting this into action and getting the kids involved in helping their community. Yeah, thanks a lot, Felton. Thanks for getting the word out on this. And, you know, everything that Lori said is true. It's it's a good way to engage in the community and to show the youth in the community some of the things that we do and allow them to give back to some of their peers. And I will say that the information as to this contest, we'll also put it on our office's Facebook page and we'll provide some flyers to to the local schools as well um, if people have questions. We've been talking with Jesse Wilson, Nevada County's District Attorney, as well as Lori Nunnick, the Senior Victim Advocate, a a great project, and we hope you get a lot of wonderful uh, contestants. Thank you, Felton. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. These days, it seems that everything comes with a warning label. In tonight's commentary, Chaplain Norris Burks muses on what such a label might look like if it were attached to religious faith. As you assemble some of those Christmas presents you got last month, did you happen to find a warning label attached? Well, some of these warning labels are quite funny. They are often cautionary labels likely inspired by lawsuit. The stickers counsel you to do such things as Remove your child from the stroller before folding. Or, once used rectally, this thermometer should not be used orally. The irony of these warnings is they are written for witless people who probably don't stop to read such things. Nevertheless, they got me thinking this week how many of these cautionary caveats might be amended into a helpful list to give anyone contemplating a new faith commitment for the New Year resolution. Let's start with the one that you might have seen with your holiday car purchase. Objects may be closer than they appear. This imprint on your car mirror warns you that distances vary from how you see them in the right-sided view. If I could modify it, I would counsel faith seekers that truth may be simpler than it appears. I say simple because we have a way of complicating our faith, causing it to become more convoluted and contrived than it should be. We pack religion full of rituals, ceremonies, and routines that often overrule their intended simplicity. And, as I've said in past commentaries, Jesus encouraged his followers to enter the faith journey as little children. In other words, the KISS principle. Keep it simple. Silly. Jesus taught that the faith walk of following God should hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Simple. Faith ought not include a long list of indecipherable assembly instructions. There really are just two. Love God, love others. Warning label number two. Your mileage may vary. 
This is the advice repeated by the salesman who once sold me a plug-in Prius. The car was supposed to get between 50 and 95 miles per gallon, but I only saw 55. This doesn't mean the salesman lied to me. It means that good mileage is subject to driving conditions, speed, and mostly, you guessed it, the nut behind the wheel, me. When it comes to faith, experiences truly do vary. For instance, I won't dispute that faith can heal people of their diseases or even help them walk on coals. However, I will dispute that faith is a one-size-fits-all deal. Your mileage may vary. Don't force your faith to fit mine, and I won't force my faith to fit yours. Rule number two. Game requires two or more players. You may have read this on the side of the video game you gave your children or your grandchildren. It's, uh, it's more of a qualification than a warning label. But when you apply it to your faith community, you see that faith does require multiple participants. It's an element I hear in Jesus' promise, when two or three of you are together because of me, you can be sure that I'll be there. Matthew 18.20 from The Message. Whenever I meet someone who proclaims faith as a solo practice, I can't help but wonder where they find the three elements necessary in a contemplative religious life. Encouragement, accountability, and community. Label number four would say, wearing of this garment does not enable flight. I read this one on the Superman pajamas I once gave to my grandson. The words certainly seem superfluous, but like the Superman emblem, faith can sometimes encourage, shall I say, flights of fancy? The pajama warning could easily include the folks who play the faith card as if they are invincible to harm or criticism. Finally, harmful if swallowed. Now, this is a cautionary label attached to countless products, but I found it particularly amusing on a brass fishing lure with a three-prong hook. It would make a good admonition concerning all elements of religion. In other words, don't just swallow everything you hear or are told about faith. This is most particularly true when you hear it from a witty spirituality commentator. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the speaker only, and not necessarily those of KVMR, its staff, management, board, or contributors. That's our newscast for tonight, Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. KVMR gets support from listeners, just like you, and from Weiss Landscaping. With over 75 years of generational experience in landscape architecture, design, and installation, Weiss Landscaping crews are educated, experienced, and provide accountability with warranties on craftsmanship, installations, and irrigation projects. Go WeissLandscaping.com and Mountain Recreation. Locally owned since 2000, retailing seasonal outdoor recreational gear, including winter outerwear and apparel, skis, snowboards, also seasonal or day rentals. Open daily on East Main Street, Grass Valley. M-T-N-R-E-C Stick around. Coming up at 6.30, it's The Sages Among Us. Tonight, Brian Buckley will interview the board president of Community Beyond Violence. Then, at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now! Thanks very much for listening to your local evening news. My name is Claudio Mendonça. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>